Hello and welcome to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh, and I'm delighted to be joined by three of our speakers from today's National Management Conference. The NMC was driven by the theme, Equipping Leaders to Build the Future, and this is the topic we'll delve into today. What challenges the CEO faces and how they can become future fit to meet those challenges tomorrow. To my left is Deborah Rowland, whose session was intriguingly titled, Is Change Changing? Then we have Terence Mary, who spoke on the subject, The Leader's Mindset, Leading with Purpose. And finally, we have Nathan Furr, who addressed the Irish business leaders in attendance about innovative leaders, leading and creating the future. Between them, they've written enough books to fill a library and enough awards and accolades to make Roger Federer blush. So we won't go into details on their bios. Suffice to say, we have lots of big brains and big ideas in the room. So welcome all to you and genuinely thanks for the fantastic sessions. Um, first question is quite straightforward. Uh, Deborah, I'll address this to you first. What is the main thing keeping CEOs awake right now? Tonight? Thank you. Um, in my mind, the main thing keeping CEOs awake at night is how to prepare my organization for ongoing change. So there's hardly any status quo state anymore. Mm. And this constant state of innovation, agility, um, and the skill sets that are needed to uh, do what I call lead from the future rather than lead from the past. Mm -hmm. So the solutions of yesterday aren't going to cut it for the future. So how do I create the capabilities? And I, I'd say that maybe a second subset of that <laughs> is, and I'll get really personal here, a lot of leaders are thinking, can I cut this too? Mm. How do I need to shift as a CEO? So I think that's also something that are keeping uh, leaders awake at night, looking into themselves too. Super. And Terence, same question to yourself? So Hugh, I think it's a good question and I think disruption is uh, one of the biggest um, threats but also opportunities of our time. Um, most CEOs still have not got a clear aligned view on how to turn those disruptors into opportunities um, at a strategic level and an operational mm. level. So for me, that's one of the biggest questions and issues that's keeping CEOs awake at night, which is what is our what is our strategy for turning disruption into opportunity? Yeah. And finally, to yourself, Nate? I'll just agree with my colleagues and suggest that I think I hear them often worrying about how do I get there? What do I do? Mm. How do I balance? You know, I have all this pressure for the short term. How do I... How do, I, how do I even think about the long term? How do I execute on that long term? How do I make my organization faster and more adaptable? And I just don't know how to do it. And I don't know how to win the sport to do it. And, you know, apart from uh, curling up at a ball in their office and crying about it, yeah. this complexity, how does a, a CEO really get down and, and tackle complexity? Again, Deborah, we'll start with you. I spoke today about this um, notion of what's called negative capability, mm. which sounds a bit odd. But negative capability is the capacity to not know. And it's a skill not to know, mm. as opposed to a deficit. So I think in the face of increasing complexity when solutions are not obvious, to be really comfortable in not knowing and to then trust that somewhere in your organisation or in the ecosystem, solutions will emerge and that your task as a leader is to just manage the conditions that will actually help the solutions be incubated somewhere, yeah. as opposed to you having to come up with all of the answers. So this negative capability concept is is a curious one, but one I find that leaders um, can I think the word is, lean into. Lean into. 
And and you say there about not knowing, uh, Terence. You talked earlier about saying no and, and the the way purpose. Obviously, a lot of your your session was about purpose. So, how can purpose lead uh, a leader to to say no in the right conditions? So you know, your purpose is really a blueprint for cutting through the noise, and it acts as a filter. It acts as a cognitive filter to decide what really matters against all the noise, distraction, and battles for attention. And, you know, our attention levels are under attack at unprecedented levels. So fighting complexity with simplicity is a non-negotiable now. Mm. And a, a big question for our listeners to ask themselves is, what's our BMI, our bureaucratic mass index? When I ask that for most organisations, it's pretty pretty too high. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll put that one on you, Nathan, especially for large complex organizations trying to drive innovation how, how can they actually uh, really get that startup philosophy within their company is it possible because it seems to be a lot of innovation that multinational companies is actually in the mergers and acquisitions department mm-hmm. they're buying innovation so how, how can they actually really bring that within their organization yeah i i love um what what my colleagues have said and i think it falls into kind of a class of issues we're wrestling with. And my fundamental theory is that most of what we know about management was built during an era of, of, let me say it was built to solve a particular problem, Mm. which is how do we coordinate large organizations? You didn't have management before the industrial revolution. Every company was a small company and management business schools were created after the industrial revolution to solve this problem. How do we manage these giant organizations that have sprung up? As the world, however, is becoming more and more uncertain, and you say, well, Nathan, is that really true? I'd say, well, yeah, the driving force here is technology. Technology lowers the barriers to create, to connect, to participate, so that now more people than ever can create. More people, and the, and the implications of that creation are magnified. So leaders are looking out there, seeing these choppy waters of change that, that my colleagues have talked about. And, and my fundamental hypothesis is, do we need new theories and frameworks to manage in this world of uncertainty? And what are those? And I think they're all around us. I heard, I think you, you, you heard two of them today. I think there's more to come. And, and so my, my belief is that we're developing this management science of uncertainty, but it's also opportunity. I absolutely believe that. And there's a couple of all the other emerging teams. Again, we, we've said simplicity there. And it seems to me the more you rise up to the top, the more you have to go back to fundamental basics. Um, and one of, the, one of the fundamental basics I always think about innovation is it needs rules. Uh, innovation generally comes out of the restrictions you put on someone. So how do you, uh, let's Deborah, let's go for you, and the individual leader, how does an individual leader refocus and, and make that simplicity uh, an ethos that they can actually deal with these massively complex uh, questions? Yes, I'm working with a company right now, and simplicity is one of their, they call it the ABCs Mm. of the new culture, which is agile, bold, collaborative, and simple. Um, And they're an organization that is extraordinarily um, complex. Um, And I think what they've really tried to do is re-engineer their uh, management systems that are extraordinarily bureaucratic. But the the mindset of simplicity, if it was simple, what would we do? Mm. So they've got this mantra now, if this was simple, what would we do? And it's just a real easy question to challenge everything that they're doing. If it were simple, what would it do? 
Um, so it's almost like as if thinking. <clears throat> that that sounds like the sort of Apple design philosophy, the, the usability, just make it simple. Yes, and to instill positive belief in people that it could actually be in your grasp, mm. as opposed to, as you said, these big complex organisations, people often blame the system. I could be simple, but the system doesn't allow me to be simple. So, okay, so in your area with your team, if it was simple, what would you actually do? And, and Terence, it, it, let's talk about the sandbox, the rules, that, that the guardrails we put on. What do you think the general philosophies of a, of a leader should be when they're, when they're talking about giving their organisation purpose and, and putting a structure around that? I think it needs to start at the um, grass, grassroots level. So it's not, the purpose isn't something that you do to somebody. And so it's a conversation, an ongoing conversation that you need to activate and sustain and scale with everybody in, 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 in the, in the organisation. And so, for example, it could be crowdsourcing purpose. Mm. where everybody has a voice and everybody then gets the opportunity to um, activate that. Um, it could be um, looking for moments of truth every day. You know, how do we run meetings? Mm. $30 billion a year is wasted on ineffective meetings in the US alone because they lack purpose. So you know, let's do the basics brilliantly, but also let's look at how we can uh, launch and scale and sustain purpose and make it at the centre of the entity not a nice to have yeah and I, I, I just want to touch on that launch scale and sustain and, and link it with the, the uh, experimental sort of culture you were talking about the little experiments I think was the, was the phrase what struck me there was if you're looking for innovation from all departments and if someone comes up with an idea they're going to be the driver of that idea they're going to have the motivation to push through so should there be a formalized process from above that says they have an idea let's put resources around them either to do their day job or to, to help them with their, their new project. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, when I spoke, I talked about how established companies that are innovative need people, process, and philosophy. And philosophy is, is, is actually, you know, people is you know, generating ideas and, and behaviors. Process is a way to test it. But philosophy is this catch-all bucket of culture and leadership and infrastructure. And I said that word infrastructure. I just threw it out there. Mm. And I like sometimes to tease the executives who come, uh, you know, work with me. And I say, you know, I want to tell you a story about how I, you know, I actually have created this really innovative, excited, exciting company. We're super disruptive. And, you know, I want you to join. I want you to lead this. But, but I want to warn you about one thing. Paying people is one of our values. We aspire to pay people, but we don't actually have a bank account yet, and we don't have anybody to write checks, and we don't have anybody to calculate your taxes, but don't worry. Paying people is one of our core values. Would you join me? Of course you wouldn't join me. You'd be like, a cool company, but I'm not going to get paid. Yeah. Innovation, on the other hand, is treated just like the example I've told you. Innovation matters to us. Innovation is our core value. We care about it. And then you look inside a company and there's absolutely no infrastructure for innovation. There's no, there's no, there's no way for ideas to be sourced. There's no mechanisms for them to be properly So, so should you have a budget? Sorry, Deborah, you jump in there. Yes, I, I used to work in the oil industry. So it's very interesting, Nathan, what you're saying. They had a, one of the organizations I was working in had a, a very interesting knowledge management system whereby they could spread innovation across the huge, huge um, organization, multinational. And talk about infrastructure, they had a monthly, what they called an offers and requests. And that meant that every month they had all of these refineries around the world. Um, every refinery had to put up an offer. We've done something really different mm. and innovative mm. and we would like to spread it into the network. 
and also requests, but we need some help. There's also this conundrum mm. that we just don't know how to solve. Is there anybody out there who's faced a similar problem and can they help us? And they had to put it three and three because what was happening was everybody put in offers. Look at us, we've done this, we've done that, and no requests. That's nobody really was prepared to be vulnerable enough to mm. say we need help. Mm. But it was a like a crowdsourced system, or it was like an infrastructure, I guess, process. Yeah. And it was amazing how it spurred productivity mm. increases across the refinery network. And it didn't have to rely on a central strategy group or a performance improvement group in the, in the center to do the innovation. They did mm. their own innovating, but they had this process of offers and requests. Every month, you had to put them in. And does the, should the CEO uh, and the leadership team in general show that vulnerability? Uh, how do they do that? Is it a town hall meeting, you know, practical? How do they show that vulnerability of, I don't know? Terence. Look, uh, I think um, there's a great book coming out in a couple of months um, by uh, Professor Amy Edmondson called uh, The Fearless Organisation. Mm. And she's one of the thought leaders on this idea of psychological safety. And, you know, we've always known that when you have psychological safety, so what I mean by that is that shared belief that you can speak up, share it, Share a, share a mistake or a concern or ask a question, say you screwed up. Actually, that builds a culture of courage. Most cultures are cultures of compliance, cultures of silence. And so this is, a, you know, I think role modeling psychological safety, and there's different types of psychological safety, learner safety. So can we call out and learn from our, our experiments? Challenger safety. How safe is it to challenge each other about things that we don't agree on? And so this is the this leader, leaders own this and they need to role model it every day. And it's a question I've asked of, of a couple of people. Should you reward failure? And, and obviously, honestly, when I say failure, I mean honest failure. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a big paradox, right? Yeah. Because clearly, if you're operating under, under uncertainty, you're going to fail. And if you're going to encourage people like they should to run fast experiments, you should expect a lot of those to fail. Mm. But to tell somebody, oh, we should accept failure. Who wants to accept failure? Nobody wants to fail, that sucks. So you have to like shift the frame and you have to shift it to what do we learn? Mm. I remember spending some time with um, Tom Chi who developed the Google Glass. Mm. They did 150 prototypes in 15 weeks. I mean, they prototyped a working Google Glass in one day. That's how fast they work. And as he talked about the process of learning, and they did a great job resolving the technical uncertainty. Can we build this? We can have a different argument about the demand uncertainty. You do yeah. customers want it. But, but as he talked about the learning process, he told me about how at one meeting, one of the engineers, uh, they were going to have a big meeting. One of the engineers came to Tom and said, Tom, I did five prototypes, but four of them were terrible. Only one worked. Can I just bring the one that worked? because he doesn't want to fail. And Tom said, absolutely not. Yeah. You have to bring the ones that failed so we can learn. And so it's shifting the lens to how do we learn from this? And, and one way to think about, to do that is to see it in an experiment in a, through a bigger lens. And I like to say there are four values of an experiment. If it works, great, that's an easy one to accept. But even when an experiment fails, there's strategic value, people you met, relationships you made that lead to new opportunities. Yeah. There's knowledge value. You develop some component or some knowledge you, you, you reuse later. And there's people value, the people learning how to experiment and, and test and learn rather than plan in their offices for you know ages without really you know testing real assumptions. So, yeah. Can I just talk about testing assumptions? Mm. I did a lot of work with Peter Senge, the so-called learning organization movement. 
And um, he drew on this um, technique from the US Army called an after-action review. Mm. And I don't know whether you've been working with after-action review or mm. AAR, but it's a brilliant um, methodology to look at so when the army would come back, you know, not everything worked. Yeah. <laughs> but let's do an after-action review on, on everything. Mm. Um, and that was a way to give permission again. Mm. Um, and an after-action review had to actually do what, you know, is called double-loop learning. Mm -hmm. So talking about learning, because just single-loop learning mm -hmm. is, okay, we screwed up there, or that didn't work, what will we do differently next time? But double-loop learning goes to what were the assumptions underneath what mm. we were trying to do? Um, and maybe rather than just have fix-its that fails, actually go into the, the so-called double-loop learning. But again, an after-action review legitimizes learning. Mm. I, li I like that, and it reminds me of some work I did in the world of Formula One, where mm. this word fail stands for from action I learn. <laughs> and it's a great way of looking at it. And in Formula One, they have preventable failure, intelligent failure. They kind of separate it. And so it's really, you know, never waste a good mistake, as uh, the saying goes. <laughs> that's, an, uh, that's an excellent phrase. I like that. Um, this is all very exciting and fast moving and, you know, innovation, et cetera, et cetera. Deborah, you, Deborah, you talked about uh, you have to be still before you move. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because, again, a lot of uh, people would have walked out of the, the session today very excited. What would you say to them for, to do first before, before they embark on these journeys? Yes, yeah, so... The research I've done shows that all genuine movement, rather than just getting busy, thinking you're innovating, starts from a place of stillness. And what do I mean by stillness? It's a place whereby you can go inward as a leader to look at your routines. Mm. And what is the source of your routines? Going back to double loop learning. So how in some way is my mentality causing the problem I'm trying to, uh, to solve here? And very often the problem and innovation is about the technique or the process as opposed to going into self. Mm. So I think my talk today really focused on that element of, of a leader turning into self to look at their hab habitual routines. And you need to be still to do that. If you're caught up in busy action, you don't notice your default. You don't notice you're, you're on autopilot mm. all the time. You're just trying to get through the day and da-da-da-da. And I think it's counterintuitive in today's world, mm. which is all about hyperactivity and you know distracted attention. So to turn inwards... But there's so much neuroscience now that shows that once the, the brain is still, it can actually be much more creative and innovative. But most of my ideas, I know most, most of the great um, inventions always happen outside the building. As the saying goes, get out of the building yeah. for, you know, for, for ideas. And you, know, you look at most buildings and they're designed to make you go to sleep. <laughs> so get out of the building and, and um, asking questions as well, I think is really important. And Nathan, I'll address this to you. Um, when we talk about sort of, let's call it disturbance in the force, so disturbing yourself to move, how can, I mean, you talked to, you told a story about the CEO accountant. How can that CEO accountant become a storyteller? You know, how can they really shift their, their own mind? Or should they be going, that's my weakness, I'll bring someone else in? Yeah. You know, this is where, so the... The work we did in this crazy book, Leading Transformation, was really well aligned with what Deborah and Terence have talked about because, you know, I see these like dilemmas that leaders get themselves into. They say, oh, I need to be a visionary leader and they announce a big vision and then everybody's like, I have no idea what to do with that. What do I do with that? And people are terrified, you know, and, and why are we doing that? You know, and we use this word story in, or, in organizational life so inappropriately, like I, Usually it means the chronology in a PowerPoint or something or, you know, and do you want to sit down and read that story? Nobody wants to read that story. 
And so what we're really talking about there in, in some ways is like really operationalizing what Terrence and Deborah are talking about is how do we really see what is possible for us? Not we're going to become the next Google. That's mm. for most companies, that's the stupidest. It's never going to happen. And you, we don't need you to do that. We've already got Google. We need you to say, what what problems do I really solve for customers? How do you create a vision about what else could be? And this is where stillness, I mean, it's a moment of stillness to engage with a different set of tools. We talked about using science fiction and acceptation. We talked about also about, you said about first principles thinking to really reflect and say, what else is possible? What could my story be? I even love to think about this at a personal level. I, 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 I had to throw it into an appendix because the publisher was like, well, this is about organizations. So even think about what's your personal story? What could your personal story be in five years? Mm. If you sat down, you wrote 15 and you had the few people you loved write, write story for what your life could be. And then how would you take some meaningful action on that? And what we talk about is like designing the artifact trail, which is what are those series of working from that end backwards, the small wins that would let you start to get there? I think it's a super powerful question that organizations and individuals never really ask themselves because we're moving so fast, like you said. I love that idea of, of making a comic book of what the future will look like. I thought it was a fantastic way of visualizing. I'm going to ask you a question, or a, a tough question, I think. Uh, Nate, Nathan mentioned there what is possible for us. We talk about purpose and we talk about authentic purpose. What purpose can a tobacco company have? You know, if you're trying to create a purpose that really engages and inspires people within a tobacco company, and tobacco company is, is extreme, mm. but again, you talked about a, a painting company. Mm-hmm. How do you get that purpose? Look, it's it's one of the big corporate dilemmas of the 21st century that a lot of organizations that um, are still around are a product of the Milton Friedman economic mm. vision, which is companies' sole purpose is to make money. Yeah. Of course, the world has shifted now. Um, it's interesting because I did work with Philip Morris and their updated vision is to create a smokeless future. <laughs> and the seeds, and it is quite clever, and, and obviously the proof is in the pudding, but the idea is that they want to create a smokeless future. So they actually, rather than allow themselves to be cannibalized, mm. um, become irrelevant by external forces, they want to um, reinvent themselves now. And so that's an example of, I think, what's very much like the oil companies buying yes. a lot of green energy and, and, and yeah. switching it to there. Yeah. Okay, so we're, we're, we're running close to the end. So I'm, I'm going to return to your original question of, of what keeps the CEO awake at night. If you were the fairy godmother and you came into the room and you could give them one characteristic or skill, what would you pick? I would pick self-awareness. Yeah. Going back to the capacity to actually tune into your own emotional and uh, cognitive states and, and have the power to run your mind rather than the mind running you. So it's a bit scary to do the deep self-awareness work, but I, I tell you, once you can do that, then everything moves around you. Super. Terence, over here. Um, uncertain times require the certainty of purpose, and so I would say start with your why. And Nathan, finally, you can have a last word. Yeah. So it's funny, Deborah. I have also written about negative capability. I think it's so powerful. So what I would wish is that they would have the ability to entertain uncertainty, without preemptively shutting it down for a less optimal future and then you know could manage from that space so not as deep and profound Deborah as what you mentioned so I'm just going to add to what you said by saying 
the ability to manage the uncertainty they face in a way that allows them to see it as an opportunity and not as something to be terrified of. Super. Well, I'd like to thank you all again for joining us today and for your fantastic sessions. For IMI members and NMC attendees, we'll be publishing member insights about each session over the next week. That also concludes the first series of IMI's Talking Leadership podcast. Thanks to all our listeners, and we will see you again in the very near future. Guys, thank you very much. Thank you.